Story 9, Part 4 of Lucy Maud Montgomery's Short Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maureen Ham. Lucy Maud Montgomery's Short Stories, 1907 to 1908, by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Story 9, Four Winds, Part 4. The Autumn Dragged Away. Alan found out how much a man may suffer, and yet go on living and working. As for that, his work was all that made life possible for him now, and he flung himself into it with feverish energy, growing so thin and hollow-eyed over it, that even Elder Truin remonstrated and suggested a vacation, a suggestion at which Alan merely smiled. A vacation would take him away from Lynde's neighborhood. The thought was not to be entertained. He never saw Lynde for he never went to any part of the shore now. Yet he hungered constantly for the sight of her, the sound of her voice, the glance of her luminous eyes. When he pictured her eating her heart out in the solitude of four winds, he clenched his hands in despair. As for the possibility of Harmon's return, Alan could never face it for a moment. When it thrust its ugly presence into his thoughts, he put it away desperately. The man was dead, or his fickle fancy had veered elsewhere. Nothing else could explain his absence, but they could never know, and the uncertainty would forever stand between him and Lind like a specter. But he thought more of Lind's pain than his own. He would have elected to bear any suffering if by so doing he could have freed her from the nightmare dread of Harmon's returning to claim her. That dread had always hung over her, and now it must be intensified to agony by her love for another man. And he could do nothing, nothing. He groaned aloud in his helplessness. One evening, in late November, Alan flung aside his pen and yielded to the impulse that urged him to the lake shore. He did not mean to seek Lind. He would go to a part of the shore where there would be no likelihood of meeting her, but get away by himself he must. A November storm was raging, and there would be a certain satisfaction in breasting its buffets and fighting his way through it. Besides, he knew that Isabel King was in the house, and he dreaded meeting her. Since his conviction that she had written that letter to Lind, he could not tolerate the girl, and it tasked his self-control to keep from showing his contempt openly. Perhaps Isabel felt it beneath all his outward courtesy. At least she did not seek his society as she had formerly done. It was the second day of the storm. A wild northeast gale was blowing, and a cold rain and freezing sleet fell in frequent showers. Alan shivered as he came out into its full fury on the lake shore. At first he could not see the water through the driving mist. Then it cleared away for a moment, and he stopped short, aghast at the sight which met his eyes. Opposite him was a long, low island known as Phillips Point, dwindling down at its northeastern side with two long, narrow bars of quicksand. Alan's horrified eyes saw a small schooner sunk between the bars. Her hull was entirely under water, and in the rigging clung one solitary figure. So much he saw before the point was blotted out in a renewed downpour of sleet. Without a moment's hesitation, Alan turned and ran for four winds, which was only about a quarter of a mile, away around a headland. With the captain's assistance, something might be done. Other help could not be obtained before darkness would fall, and then it would be impossible to do anything. He dashed up the steps of four winds and met Emily, who had flung the door open. 
Behind her was Lynn's pale face with its alarmed, questioning eyes. Where is the captain? gasped Alan. There's a vessel on Phillips Point, and one man at least on her. The captain's away on a cruise, said Emily blankly. He went three days ago. Then nothing can be done, said Alan despairingly. It will be dark long before I can get to the village. Lynn stepped out, tying a shawl around her head. Let us go around to the point, she said. Have you matches? No, Emily, get some. We must light a bonfire at least, and bring father's glass. It is not a fit night for you to be out, said Alan anxiously. You are sheltered here. You don't feel it, but it's a fearful storm down there. I'm not afraid of the storm. It will not hurt me. Let us hurry. It is growing dark already. In silence they breasted their way to the shore and around the headland, arriving opposite Philip's point. A lull in the sleet permitted them to see the sunken schooner and the clinging figure. Lynn waved her hand to him, and they saw him wave back. "'It won't be necessary to light a fire now that he has seen us,' said Lynde. "'Nothing can be done with village help till morning, and that man can never cling there so long. He will freeze to death, for it is growing colder every minute. His only chance is to swim ashore if he can swim. The danger will be when he comes near shore. The undertow of the backwater on the quicksand will sweep him away, and in his probably exhausted condition he may not be able to make head against it. He knows that, doubtless, and that is why he hasn't attempted to swim ashore before this, said Alan. But I'll meet him in the backwater and drag him in. You'll, you'll risk your own life, cried Lind. There is little risk, certainly, but I don't think there is a great one. Anyhow, the attempt must be made, said Alan quietly. Suddenly Lind's composure forsook her. She wrung her hands. I can't let you do it, she cried wildly. You might be drowned. There's every risk. You don't know the force of that backwater. Alan, Alan, don't think of it. She caught his arm in her white, wet hands and looked into his face with passionate pleading. Emily, who had said nothing, now spoke harshly. Lind is right, Mr. Douglas. You have no right to risk your life for a stranger. My advice is to go to the village for help, and Lind and I will make a fire and watch here. That is all that can be expected of you or us. Alan paid no heed to Emily. Very tenderly, he loosened Lynde's hold on his arm and looked into her quivering face. "'You know it's my duty, Lynde,' he said gently. "'If anything can be done for that poor man, I am the only one who can do it. I will come back safe, please, God. Be brave, dear.' Lynde, with a little moan of resignation, turned away. Old Emily looked on with a face of grim disapproval as Alan waded out into the surf that boiled and swirled around him in a mad whirl of foam. The shower of sleet had again slackened, and the wreck, half a mile away, with its solitary figure, was dearly visible. Alan beckoned to the man to jump overboard and swim ashore, enforcing his appeal by gestures that commanded haste before the next shower should come. For a few moments it seemed as if the seaman did not understand or lacked the courage or power to obey. The next minute he had dropped from the rigging on the crest of a mighty wave and was being borne onward to the shore. Speedily the backwater was reached, and the man, sucked down by the swirl of the wave, threw up his arms and disappeared. Alan dashed in, groping, swimming. It seemed an eternity before his hand clutched the drowning man and wrenched him from the undertow, and with the seaman in his arms he staggered back through the foam and dropped his burden on the sand at Lynde's feet. Alan was reeling from exhaustion and chilled to the marrow, but he thought only of the man he had rescued. The latter was unconscious, and, as Alan bent over him, he heard Lind give a choking little cry. 
He is living still, said Alan. We must get him up to the house as soon as possible. How shall we manage it? Lind and I can go and bring the captain's mattress down, said Emily. Now that Alan was safe, she was eager to do all she could. Then you and I can carry him up to the house. That will be best, said Alan. Go quickly. He did not look at Lind, or he would have been shocked by the agony on her face. She cast one glance at the prostrate man and followed Emily. In a short time they returned with the mattress, and Alan and Emily carried the sailor on it to four winds. Lind walked behind them, seemingly unconscious of both. She watched the stranger's face as one fascinated. At four winds they carried the man to a room where Emily and Alan worked over him while Lind heated water and hunted out stimulants in a mechanical fashion. When Alan came down she asked no questions but looked at him with the same strained horror on her face which it had borne ever since Alan dropped his burden at her feet. "'Is he conscious?' asked Lind, as if she forced herself to ask the question. "'Yes, he has come back to life, but he is delirious and doesn't realize his surroundings at all. He thinks he is still on board the vessel. He'll probably come round all right. Emily is going to watch him, and I'll go up to Rexton and send Dr. Ames down.' Dr. Ames came to Four Winds that night and again the next day. He found Harmon delirious in a high fever. It will be several days before he comes to his senses, he said. Shall I send you help to nurse him? It isn't necessary, said Emily stiffly. I can look after him, and the captain ought to be back tomorrow. You have no idea who he is, I suppose, asked the doctor. No, Emily was quite sincere. Lind had not told her, and Emily did not recognize him. Well, Mr. Douglas did a brave thing in rescuing him, said Dr. Ames. I'll be back tomorrow. Harmon remained delirious for a week. Alan went every day to Four Winds, his interest in a man he had rescued, explaining his visits to the Rexton people. The captain had returned, and though not absolutely uncivil, was taciturn and moody. Alan reflected grimly that the Captain Anthony probably owed him a grudge for saving Harmon's life. He never saw Lind alone, but her strained, tortured face made his heart ache. Old Emily only seemed her natural self. She waited on Harmon, and Dr. Ames considered her a paragon of a nurse. Alan thought it was well that Emily knew nothing more of Harmon than that he was an old friend of Captain Anthony's. He felt sure that she would have walked out of the sick-room and never re-entered it had she guessed that the patient was the man who, above all others, Lind dreaded and feared. One afternoon, when Alan went to the Four Winds, Emily met him at the door. "'He's better,' she announced. He had a good sleep this afternoon, and when he woke, he was quite himself. You'd better go up and see him. I told him all I could, but he wants to see you. Anthony and Lind are away to Cross Harbor. Go up and talk to him. Harmon turned his head as the minister approached and held out his hand with a smile. You're the preacher, I reckon. They tell me you were the man who pulled me out of that hurly-burly. I wasn't hardly worth saving, but I am as grateful to you as if I was." "'I only did what any man would have done,' said Alan, taking the offered hand. "'I don't know about that. Anyhow, it's not every man could have done it. I'd been hanging in that rigging all day and most of the night before. There were five more of us, but they dropped off. I knew it was no use to try to swim ashore alone. The backwater would be too much for me. I must have been a lot of trouble. That old woman says I've been raving for a week. And by the way I feel, I'll fancy, I'll be stretched out here another week before I'll be able to use my pins. 
Who are these Olivers, anyhow? The old woman won't talk about the family. Don't you know them? asked Alan in astonishment. Isn't your name Harmon? That's right. Alfred Harmon, first mate of the schooner. Annie M. Alfred! I thought your name was Frank. Frank was my twin brother. We were so much alike. Our own mammy couldn't tell us apart. Did you know Frank? No, this family did. Miss Oliver thought you were Frank when she saw you. I don't feel much like myself, but I'm not Frank anyway. He's dead, poor chap. Got shot in a spat with Chinese pirates three years ago. Dead? Man, are you speaking the truth? Are you certain? Pop, sure. His mate told me the whole story. Say, preacher, what's the matter? You look as if you were going to keel over. Alan hastily drunk a glass of water. I, I'm all right now. I haven't been feeling well of late. Guess you didn't do yourself any good going out in that freezing water and dragging me in. I shall thank God every day of my life that I did do it, said Alan gravely. New light in his eyes as Emily entered the room. Miss Oliver, when will Captain and Lind be back? They said they would be home by four. She looked at Alan curiously. I will go ahead and meet her, he said quickly. He came upon Lind, sitting on a gray boulder under the shadow of an overhanging fir coppice with her dogs beside her. She turned her head indifferently as Alan's footsteps sounded on the pebbles, then stood up slowly. Are you looking for me? she asked. I have some news for you, Lind, Alan said. Has he, has he come to himself? she whispered. Yes, he has come to himself, Lind. He is not Frank Harmon. He is his twin brother. He says Frank Harmon was killed three years ago in the China Seas. For a moment, Lynn's great gray eyes stared into Alan's questioning. Then, as the truth seized on her comprehension, she sat down on the boulder and put her hands over her face without a word. Alan walked down to the water's edge to give her time to recover herself. When he came back, he took her hands and said quietly, Lynn, do you realize what this means for us? You are free, free to love me, to be my wife. Lynn shook her head. Oh, that can't be. I am not fit to be your wife. Don't talk nonsense, dear, he smiled. It isn't nonsense. You are a minister, and it would ruin you to marry a girl like me. Think what the Rexton people would say of it. Rexton isn't the world, dearest. Last week I had a letter from home asking me to go to a church there. I did not think of accepting then. Now I will go. We will both go, and a new life will begin for you, clear of the shadows of the old. That isn't possible. No, Alan, listen. I love you too well to do you the wrong of marrying you. It would injure you. There is father. I love him, and he has always been very kind to me. But there's something wrong. You know it. Some crime in his past. The only man who knew that is dead. We don't know that he was the only man. I am the daughter of a criminal, and I am no fit wife for Alan Douglas. No, Alan, don't plead, please. I won't think differently. I never can. There was a ring of finality in her tone that struck dismay to Alan's heart. He prepared to entreat and argue, but before he could utter a word, the boughs behind them parted and Captain Anthony stepped down from the bank. I've been listening, he announced coolly, and I think at high time I took a share in the conversation. You seem to have run up against a snag, Mr. Douglas. You say Frank Harmon is dead. That's good riddance, if it's true. Is it true? His brother declares it. Well, then, I'll help you all I can. I like you, Mr. Douglas, and I happen to be fond of Lind, too, though you mayn't believe it. I'm fond of her for her mother's sake, and I'd like to see her happy. I didn't want to give her to Harmon that time three years ago, but I couldn't help myself. He had the upper hand, curse him. 
It wasn't for my own sake, though. It was for my wife's. However, that's all over and done with, and I'll do the best I can to atone for it. So you won't marry your minister, because your father was not a good man, Lind. Well, I don't suppose he was a very good man. A man who makes his wife's life a hell, even in a refined way, isn't exactly a saint, to my way of thinking. But that's the worst that could be said of him, and it doesn't entail any indelible disgrace on his family, I suppose. I'm not your father, Lind. Not my father? Lind echoed the words blankly. No, your father was your mother's first husband. She never told you of him. When I said he made her life a hell, I said the truth. No more, no less. I had loved your mother ever since I was a boy, Lind, but she was far above me in station, and I never dreamed it was possible to win her love. She married James Ashley. He was a gentleman, so-called, and he didn't kick or beat her. Oh, no, he just tormented her refined womanhood to the verge of frenzy, that was all. He died when you were a baby, and a year later I found out your mother could love me, rough sailor, and all as I was. I married her and brought her here. We had fifteen years of happiness together. I'm not a good man, but I made your mother happy in spite of her wrecked health and her dark memories. It was her wish that you should be known as my daughter, but under the present circumstances I know she would wish that you should be told the truth. Marry your man, Lind, and go away with him. Emily will go with you if you like. I'm going back to the sea. I've been hankering for it ever since your mother died. I'll go out of your life. There, don't cry. I hate to see a woman cry. Mr. Douglas, I'll leave you to dry her tears, and I'll go up to the house and have a talk with Harmon. When Captain Anthony had disappeared behind the point, Alan turned to Lind. She was sobbing softly, and her face was wet with tears. Alan drew her head down on his shoulder. Sweetheart, the dark past is all put by. Our future begins with promise. All is well with us, dear Lind. Like a child, she put her arms around his neck, and their lips met. End of Four Winds, Part 4